Hey, and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 408. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today I'm so excited to dive into the ambition penalty. We're talking all things men, women, money, power with Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. If you don't know her already, Stephanie is a fantastic writer and journalist who covers money, power, ambition, and gender in her award-winning newsletter, Too Ambitious. She also has bylines in Bloomberg, CNBC, Glamour UK, Newsweek, and so much more, and is the producer and host of Real Simple Magazine's Money Confidential podcast. Stephanie, welcome to the Bossed Up podcast. It's so psyched to be here. Thanks. I followed you for a long time. Let me just start there and say I am obsessed with how quippy and how attention-grabbing your online content has been around women, ambition, and relationships. Like, is that is that what you think about and read about and, and make content about all day, every day now? I have been thinking about all of these things for over a decade. And in some form or fashion, I've been writing about them. But when I started, I was writing about like five ways to improve your credit score. And that's really, really important, right? But there is a limit to how many times I could write that same piece of content. There's so many people who can talk about that and they have new takes and interesting perspectives. And to be honest, my perspective on it isn't all that interesting. Sure, I can give you the five ways to do it. But at the end of the day, I wanted to think like, what does my experience, what can I bring to bear on this conversation that can help us or anybody have a better relationship with it, whether it's money, whether it's work, whether it's their ambition. And what I just saw coming up again and again in those conversations with the women I had was this real disconnect between everything they were told and taught to believe about how money, work, and ambition would work for them growing up and how that experience has come to bear now a decade into their careers and feeling like I have all this ambition and I've been burnt out by it or I have been like penalized for it, for expressing it. And it feels like this just like weird what's going on here moment that so many of my colleagues seem to be really struggling with. And I get it because I'm tired too. You know, I'm 36 years old and I'm really ambitious and I'm really tired. And I think there's just a lot more conversation to be had here. So I'm glad that it comes across as quippy on Instagram in the way I've been able to express it because obviously here I'm very long winded. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it could get wonky fast and it's also like, you know, how deep of an existential spiral do we want to get into? Because the data is kind of a bummer most of the time. I, I know. The data is really a bummer. And it's hard because like getting honest about women's experiences about work and money can often feel like, oh, well, actually, um, everything you were taught to believe is a lie. And so you should – so sometimes people think the implication is I should give up or I shouldn't do anything or I should like forget my ambition altogether. And that is not my message at all. What I want people to walk away from my content with is an understanding that it is not them that is a problem. It is not their ambition or what they want in their lives that is a problem. It is the way the world responds to our expression of our ambitions and what happens when we do lean in at work. That's the problem. And what we need to do is stop like 
letting everybody gaslight us into thinking that we're the problem because it's not us. I just like so many of my girlfriends, so many of the people I've interviewed are doing all the right things. They're going into the workplace. They're asking for raises. They're trying to put themselves up for promotions. They're leaning all the way in at work and at home. And yet like they're often not being able to access those leadership positions and not getting the raises they've requested and often being penalized for them. Yeah. So talk to me about what that phenomenon really boils down to, right? It's called the ambition penalty. You just wrote a great piece about it for Glamour Magazine in the UK. I'll link to it in the show notes. Let's break that down. Is the ambition penalty one thing? Is it a variety of of phenomenon in the workplace? Like what is that really mean, the ambition penalty? Yeah, I, I think it's really about speaking to this broader experience that that's really the paradox at the heart of a, a lot of the quote-unquote empowerment advice we kind of grew up hearing, which is that like if you want to get what you want at work and at home or public life, wherever. you In need the to dating look, scene. In the dating scene. <laughs> you just got to ask for it. Didn't you know that? Right. And the truth is when you do ask for it oftentimes, or you do speak up and you do assert yourself and you are confident and you are ambitious, women more likely than men are more likely to experience backlash. So that can be being labeled, ah, not a great fit. If you're at your company, being discounted from future promotional opportunities, being having job offers rescinded. I can't tell you the amount of women I've spoken to who've negotiated a job offer. And then as they went to negotiate, the employer took the job offer away. It's bananas. And yet this advice has been given to us so simplistically, like, well, the reason you don't make as much as your male colleague is because you don't ask for it. And then you go and ask for it and you're getting this kind of response. And it's this, this kind of maddening cycle that I think a lot of us are stuck in and haven't had the language for. And the ambition penalty is really about recognizing it and calling it out and holding these systems that disproportionately penalize women, penalize women of color, penalize women across sexuality and class and ability disproportionately and holding them accountable because we are doing the right things. We are speaking up and asking for more. And so it's time that like we stop getting judged for it. Yeah. And it's so hard to hold them accountable, isn't it? Because you're just a fish in the sea and it's like the sea is not working for me and not working for me because of my gender, which I can't even tell because it just feels like me, like I've personally failed to negotiate, right? You know, and it just makes you crazy, doesn't it? It's like a societal gaslighting of ambitious women. That's exactly what it is. But what I have noticed, and this is why like, I do think my point here is not to be depressing, but to provide language is what I find happens for people when they have language to kind of express what's happening to them. They stop internalizing the experience as something that they did or something that they are just insufficient. This idea that like something is wrong with them inherently, because that's the thing that keeps you trapped in a cycle where like you have this bad experience and your whole life you were told the worst they can say is no. And then all of a sudden you experience this huge backlash. So you think, of course, it's got to be me. And so I can never, I'm not good enough. I am an imposter, right? And and that is what I want to disrupt. Because if you can say, actually, 
if, if this isn't me, if this is a workplace that still systematically has disproportionate sanctions for women who do speak up, then I can recognize it's not me that's the problem. It's this context. It's this workplace. It's this boss. It's whatever. And then I can, you know, have that kind of um, emotional toolkit and language to work through the process of looking for the place that is going to be a champion of my ambitions rather than a, a place that penalizes them. And so that's why I think the work is important. And then also, I can't tell you the amount of messages I get from people who think they're completely alone in these experiences because they have never heard somebody talk about them. Again, the narrative being like the worst they could say is no, you know, that constantly or in dating. I can't tell you the amount of women I've spoken to whose partners suddenly become really hostile and aggressive towards them when the women start making more money. This is not stuff that like you may have heard whispers about it, but it's not really a mainstream conversation. And I think it needs to be because I think by not talking about it, we're creating a lot of isolation and a lot of shame. Yeah. In the workplace, I, I definitely want to talk about romantic partnerships in a moment. But before we move on to that, I see a lot of this showing up in the workplace in that the promotions are not being doled out equally. At Boss Up in the past few years, we've really focused on helping employers dismantle and recreate their leadership pipeline process by focusing explicitly on underrepresented leadership, predominantly women and folks of color, and say, how are we equipping the women here to be invited into leadership, to tap into their ambition, right? To be auditing our promotion policies for bias because it's there. You know, we know women aren't being promoted at equal rates than men. And so how can leadership development, how can DEI practices help create a more just system where you are? And, you know, it's one thing to do that from the leadership development angle and from a B2B standpoint. But when you're the individual and you're throwing your hat in the ring, you've been passed over for promotions multiple times. The logical choice might be to look elsewhere and maybe it's not you. Is that what I hear you kind of saying? Yeah, I think for me, it's really hard to like give advice to women that individualizes the problem because it's pretty antithetical to like everything that I've come to believe about why these dynamics are perpetuated in the workplace. But if I if I do try to think about it from the perspective of talking to the people that I've had these conversations with and the experiences they've been through, I first want them to understand what broader dynamics are at play here. And then I do want them to also think about, you know, what does it mean to find places where what you desire is going to be championed and supported? And a problem is nowadays, you'll see a lot of these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements on a website. And then you go look at the Our Team you know, or the or the board. And there's just absolutely no reflection of the diversity, equity, and inclusion statement in those profiles or on LinkedIn or talking to other people who've worked at those companies. And so I think as if we can try to find those markers earlier in the process before we've invested, you know, four interviews or you know years of our lives trying to get promotions and being told that it's going to happen and then being thwarted i can't tell you how many of those stories i've heard you know i think i think that's the stuff to keep your eye out for and and to you know see where are the places where people like me and and people who want what i want are getting ahead absolutely 
Do you think there's a misconception around women and ambition in general? Like, how can we be both burnt out and ambitious? Because I think that describes my entire podcast audience is both. So how can we how can we hold those two things as it relates to our ambition, you know? I think ambition has really been conflated with hustle culture. And there's this whole idea that your ambition is matched to your productivity or like how hard you grind or how many hours in a day you're putting into the work. And I actually think that this philosophy is designed to disenfranchise women specifically from their own ambitions. Because the fact is women are more likely to be caretakers and to ha- shoulder more of the household labor and to carry more of the community commitments outside of the work place. And so when they're carrying all of that, it already inherently limits the amount of hours anybody can be available round the clock. And so then it becomes, well, you're just not grinding hard enough. And so then you have women trying to lean all the way in at work and at home at the same time. And that is a recipe for burnout. A lot of the people who are preaching this household culture model have somebody making all of their meals and and managing their household for them. You know, some Something like 70% of executives have a stay-at-home spouse. And those people are usually men who have a female spouse at home managing their life for them. And so when you have this kind of like hustle culture model and ambition is somehow supposed to be, you know, the amount of hours you work is like the metric of your ambition, quote, so to speak, which I don't think is true at all. It creates this intendable situation where you just feel like I can't do all of this because I'm already shouldering all these commitments. And so I do feel burnt out. And I think what happens is we wind up misattributing our unhappiness with hustle culture to a disenfranchisement from ambition. And I think that's by design. If you just make it impossible for women to integrate their careers into their lives like men do, then of course, it's a great way to like pretend that they don't have as much ambition. You know what's so interesting about that? is that I think that sounds pretty miserable to men too. A hundred percent. Millennial men in particular want something different. And the stats on men right now are pretty scary too. Social isolation, alcoholism and addiction. Even the 2008 recession disproportionately hit men and male-dominated industries disproportionately. Those two can both be true, right? Especially dads. You know, my husband, Brad the dad, we have a a one-and-a-half-year-old. Like, his relationship to the hours he puts in at work is fundamentally changed because that's not our focus this season on, you know, our household's sort of life right now. So I do wonder, like, if you're saying this is a systemic problem, you know, the headline is not this is good for women. It's really this is good for everyone, right? Absolutely everything I talk about is through the framework of what of this is good for everybody. So I don't think of these dynamics as like this dude versus this woman. And like, it's this kind of battle of the sexes playing out on an individual level. This is often how the trolls in my comments like to frame what I'm saying. And it's never what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a system of incentives and disincentives of what it means to be a quote unquote good man in our society and what it means to be a quote unquote good woman in our society. And as much as we like to think that our cultural ideas are pretty progressive, they're pretty narrow when it comes to these ideas of gender roles. And, you know, this is really interesting because uh, you'll see these gender roles 
cut across gender identity and sexuality too. It's this ideal of like, if I am in the mother role and I am not prioritizing my child everywhere, every time I go somewhere, I'm going to be judged for it. You know, whether it's by my mother-in-law, whether it's by my colleague, it's like, why aren't you being a good mom? And yet when I go into the workplace, it's going to be like, well, she's a mom, so we're not going to give her this added responsibility because being a mom is her first and primary focus. And in the good father kind of narrative is this idea of this is the breadwinner. This is the provider for the family. And so this person has to be given more promotional opportunities. And if they're not the one who's making the most money in the home, then you know what's wrong with them? And then they're facing backlash for prioritizing any kind of caregiving commitments. If they take the paternity leave they're entitled to, maybe they have it accessible in their workplace, but maybe they'll be stigmatized for it. And then maybe they'll be discounted and and be considered not committed. So in this way, this system of incentives and disincentives hurts these men too. Definitely. Yeah. I think the most obvious gender difference and sort of way in which that stereotype shows up is in the pay equity conversation. Because right now, you know, the latest data is really showing that the wage gap between men and women is predominantly because of the wage penalties moms face. And then when men become dads, on average, their earnings go up. The daddy pay bonus. You know what I mean? It's like the mom pay laws and the dad, like women with children's, a lot of those women's pay never recovers. And that's a steep price to pay. Right? Like even the conversation around it is wild when you have these people, again, trolling in the comments saying like, this is because of motherhood as though like fathers aren't parents. Right? So it's like, wait, if this is about this isn't about parenthood because fathers are benefiting. This is about gender. This is about a woman who's a parent versus a man who's a parent. And yet we keep talking about this like it's not true or real. This is the thing that drives me wild about so much of these conversations. And I think it's part of, again, contributing to this disillusionment a lot of us are feeling in the burnout. It's just we've been so gaslit every step of the way. You know, at least <laughs> I don't want to romanticize it, but at least the harassment and discrimination was really exposed explicit and clear before. Now you have people doing it all the time to you and then turning around and saying, no, that's not happening. That's because of this or that and this. And so what I try to do on my Instagram is every time be like, every time somebody comes up with one of these things like, ah, well, that's pay gap's not real. These are just moms, right? Or uh, women just don't like science or women just don't partake in men's activities. It's just a false assumption built on false assumption, and we are justifying a way or trying to justify a way these totally blatantly unequal outcomes shamelessly, shamelessly. And my challenge is we should be ashamed to say these things because they're not true, and all they do is serve to justify and accept inequality. And particularly when you compare America to lots of other places. Not that anyone's getting it like 100% right on gender, but Americans should be particularly embarrassed because we have work to do. And my mom and I were just chatting because I'm navigating a childcare crisis in our personal situation. Thank God, literally as of today, we found a daycare spot, which is like a literal miracle when the wait lists are like a year long. I know. It's like playing the lottery. <laughs> it feels like I just won the lottery is exactly how it feels. Thank God. 
And if I had had this conversation with you two days ago, it would sound very different. Like my whole life was about to be ground to a halt. You know what I mean? And so my mom just looked at my husband and I when we told her, oh my God, this is such a bargain. You know, here's the thousands of dollars we're going to spend on childcare. And she just said, I don't know how it's even possible to have a kid nowadays. And I said, yes, that is our country's embarrassment. And it should be a, a big question we ask ourselves as a nation. Yes, it is shameful. Absolutely. And I feel like we talk about it like, oh, it's just quirky American trait. No, it's shameful. Or like it's a personal f- problem. Like, good luck becoming a parent. The next five years, you fall into a crack that like society doesn't even acknowledge. So have fun. Yeah, it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. Like we've we've really collectively like bought into public education and the idea that we should take care of our elderly, the idea that we shouldn't have any kind of care for, you know, infants and young children. It's just bizarre. And it just becomes a why aren't you at home taking care of them kind of question. (laughs) Well, and that's it. So maybe it's not bizarre. It's by design. Again, coming back to this idea of like, oh, if you make combining caregiving and career untenable, then you will force women out of work. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. I think you got it, Stephanie. There we go. (laughs) Okay. I, I will admit this is like my big feminist fear. Okay. I have what I would argue is one of the coolest husbands around, right? I'm a big fan of Brad the Brad the Boob, now Brad the Dad. <laughs> and yet, when Bill and Melinda Gates got divorced, my heart stopped. I started like I couldn't breathe. When you see famous power couples who like champion gender equity in some way split, like when Ali Wong announced her divorce, I froze in my place. And every time that happens, I'm reminded of some of the devastating research that you find about men and women. And yes, this is very heteronormative of me, but like marriages that are heterosexual, when money gets involved, when a woman is a breadwinner, which I'm unashamed to acknowledge, Brad loves the fact that I'm a breadwinner. Like we're all fans of me earning money here. But like (laughs) the data is bad on cheating, right? Infidelity, divorce, give us the news and then help me understand why this is happening. Yeah, so one of the most interesting parts of this research is that in these heterosexual relationships in the United States, and this is a dynamic that also plays out abroad, although, you know, every country is its own nuance. So. But certainly in the United States, as you see, couples benefit when both partners work, and they benefit as women begin to earn more and more money within the context of the relationship. Everything from like relationship satisfaction goes up. I think it was sexual satisfaction goes up. Like all of these metrics are going up. Household income, which can be a reliever of stress until she surpasses him. As soon as a female partner's income surpasses her male partner, that's when all of a sudden you see these higher rates of things like divorce, infidelity, sometimes emotional and physical abuse. You know, I I don't want to say like that this is what happens in the vast majority of relationships, but the fact that this is the tipping point that makes it more likely. And one of the really interesting studies I was uh, reading kind of related on this was wasn't about income in and of itself, but it was studying male and female partners working on a task and how they responded when the other partner succeeded. And no matter what the task was, men really were upset when their 
female partners outperformed them. And I think this goes back again to this like man should be, woman should be narrative, right? It's not that men are trash and women are fabulous. This is not like this gender war thing. It is about a system of what it means to be considered like a man in our culture, which is to always be dominant, always be outperforming, always be providing more than anybody else, right? If I'm not a breadwinner, I'm less of a man. I'm less of a provider. And so if my wife begins to out-earn me, then like I might start to feel emasculated. Even if that's what I'm not consciously thinking, that might be like the kind of feeling I'm having that then causes me to subconsciously start acting out in these ways. And it's wild. You see this come up in the unpaid labor research too. You'll see women who become breadwinners doing even more household unpaid household labor, even if they out-earn their partners, even if their male partners don't work, you'll still have women who are providing all the financial resources, providing the vast majority of childcare and housework. And that is because we have our own internal mechanism that says, well, you know, if I'm not being the good wife, if I'm, if I'm not being submissive, again, a lot of this isn't an, an explicit thought pattern, but it's this idea of like, I don't want my husband to feel emasculated. So like, let me make sure our house looks perfect and I'll have like the most Instagram worthy nursery and I'll be like the most perfect involved mom because then that'll serve as this kind of buffer against my like potential emasculating force through my income. So this is the kind of dynamic that leads to like, just again, untenable situation. You just can't do everything 100%. We need a partnership model instead of a provider model. Or if we're talking about a provider model of relationships, let's expand what it means to provide, right? Financial resources are a very small part of what it means to provide for a family, to provide care, to provide love, to provide time, yeah, come on. <laughs> Such a good point, Stephanie. And all of this is so much more about masculinity than about women. This is what I learned from the research is, is like hegemonic masculinity. So it's not just like masculinity. It's what is the ideal cultural version of masculinity as dictated by our society? And what's really wild about this stuff is we think about these things as though they're static, and yet they change all the time. We think it means to be masculine, to make more money than your spouse, and, and to be big and powerful. But like, you know, back in the early days of the country, men were wearing makeup and wigs and heels to legislate, right? That was hegemonic masculinity. That was the ideal of masculine power, these congressmen and their battered wigs, right? <laughs> exactly. And so this is where I have, as depressing as some of this stuff can be, where I have a lot of hope. Because one of the problems is that like, we kind of perpetuate these myths about why things are the way they are. And we kind of talk about them as though there are these fixed things. And if we understand that actually, no, these are like cultural choices and we can choose something different, that's liberating. And what I think we can choose is not just more women being like men. I don't I don't want that world. I don't think that helps the vast majority of people. Right? And like, to be clear, yeah, gender is that much of a social construct. That's what we mean when we say the gender binary is just a made up social myth. <laughs> I mean, we're in it. Yeah. Yeah, we're there. That's what they've been doing for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And like, we've done it. 
right? And so many of us are tired, but the boys and the men, they're just getting started with this conversation. Yeah, exactly. And I think we all need to be a part of it, men, women, people across the gender identity spectrum. And I think we need to kind of reimagine this world more expansively. It doesn't mean to to be a leader is to be masculine in today's 2023 definition of it, according to some white dude on TikTok, right? No, to be a leader can be compassionate, to be community-oriented, to be strong and brave. It can be everything. It can be all of these things. Our creativity and I think our imagination has been so limited by these ideals of gender norms and masculinity and femininity and what they're associated with. And my hope is not that women are, are simply like equal with men. Like, yeah, I think we shouldn't be undervalued, but I want to see a world in which like everybody is able to live in better alignment with their own ambitions, whatever they are. Yeah. Exciting. Including caretaker ambitions, including these historically women-dominated spaces that have been societally ignored or undervalued or never compensated. Yeah. Oh, wow. I have so much more to talk about with you. We should keep in touch. <laughs> I I have like an endless supply. Every time I make Unreal, I'm like, I just came up with 20 more ideas of things I want to cover. So I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about on our next conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. And for folks listening, I encourage you to check out Stephanie's Instagram. We'll drop a link to it in our show notes because your reels are just on another level. Uh, You know, you're inspiring me to maybe get back on the camera there. Do it. I appreciate that. (laughs) Where can our listeners keep up with you? Give us all the goods. Give us all the deets. And I'll definitely link to everything in our notes. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Stephanie O'Connell. I'm Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. If you Google me, you'll find me. I have a newsletter called TooAmbitious.com. So you can find more about these kinds of stats we were talking about today there. It's an amazing newsletter too. I've cited it in some of my past podcasts. So keep up the great work, Stephanie. And thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. For links to everything Stephanie and I discussed on today's episode, head to bossedup.org slash episode 408. That's bossedup.org slash episode 408. And now I want to hear from you. I know you've got lots to say about what we covered here today. What stood out to you? Where is this stuff showing up in your life, in your relationships, in your work life, in your career ambitions? Has the ambition penalty held you back? led you to feel gaslit by the world around you? Or has it left you burnt out and less ambitious than you once were? Let's keep the conversation going in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook or in our growing group on LinkedIn. I'll drop links to both those places in today's show notes as well. Until next time, let's keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's lift as we climb.